Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, take a few moments for silent prayer so you can make sure that you are spiritually prepared to study the word. And by that I mean that you are in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to uh, focus on the study of the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening and that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and that in your word you have given us and described to us everything that you have given to us related to life and godliness. You have revealed to us that you have given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us and he is the one who fills us with your word and enables us and strengthens us in our application of your word. And now, Father, as we study these examples of Hebrews 11, Examples related to Old Testament saints who were faithful in the application of the revelation that was given to them. We pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us in our own spiritual life, that like them we may be faithful to the revelation that you have given to us in your word, and that under the power of God the Holy Spirit we might press on in our spiritual growth and not fall by the wayside and not become uh, victims of our own negative volition and our own unwillingness to push forward. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews 11. You might want to go ahead and turn to Hebrews 11, and I will give you a little introductory background as we get into the next section, which focuses on the uh, spiritual life of Moses once again emphasizing the role of faith in Moses' spiritual life. Back in verse 1, the writer said, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, indicating that there is a reality, a spiritual reality, that is beyond the five senses, that is not directly uh, perceivable by the by our mind or our physical senses, and that we can only come to know and only understand when God tells us by way of his informing us. And so God then stands in the position of authority, telling us and describing to us things that we cannot come to know any other way other than by his revelation, his disclosure of that information. And it is that information that he discloses in his word that is the critical information necessary to really be able to properly interpret everything around us in creation, everything from the uh, from history and the meaning of history to the meaning of our own individual lives and the role 
of our own individual lives within the plan of God. So that faith then, meaning both the act of faith, but including within that concept the the content of the faith, that is, what is believed, we have uh, evidence of the reality of a of a world, an environment that is not directly uh, perceivable. And so we have uh, emphasis on words such as evidence, promise, things of that nature, which are uh, threads that run throughout this particular chapter, because faith does not operate in a vacuum. Biblically, faith is always in a propositional statement by God. Now, that sounds kind of fancy, like it comes out of philosophy 101, and it will and does, because a proposition is a technical term for a statement that can either be proved to be true or false. Questions are not propositions. What's the temperature outside? You can't prove that to be true or false. That is a question. If I ask you to go into the kitchen and get me a bottle of water, that is cannot be proved to be true or false. It is a request. So orders, requests, imperatival statements are not propositions. Questions are not propositions. But declarative statements, or what the Greek would put in the indicative mood, and what you, you and I learned in high school would be just plain declarative statements, statements of fact, can be proved to be true or false. And you either believe it to be true, or you believe it to be false. If you say it is raining uh, oil drops outside, you can either believe that to be true, or believe that to be false. If you say that it is snowing outside, then if it is August in Houston, you know to believe that to be false that that cannot happen. And so you have these various propositions, and faith or belief is always related to a proposition of some sort. That is why we refer to the Word of God as propositional truth, because it is revealing to us things that are can be demonstrated to be either true or false, and they are to be believed. Sometimes there is... Not much evidence of some of the propositions. Sometimes there's a tremendous amount of evidence related to uh, the propositions or truths that are revealed in, in God's word, and we are to believe them. And the focus of the belief that we see in the Old Testament related to Noah, related to going all the way back actually to Adam, to um, uh, Abel, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, that God gave revelation to each one of them, but it, it developed over time. That's what we call progressive revelation. And so far, so far in this little introduction today, I've given you um, several terms to define, which are all at the very core of understanding basic doctrines about inspiration and fallibility of the Bible, what theologians call bibliology. And so we have progressive revelation. And progressive revelation is the idea that God doesn't just dump everything he wants people to know at the same time, that there is a progression of information given and that each individual in terms of the time in which they live is responsible for the amount of revelation that they've been given to that point. So that 
Adam was given a set amount of information. There was a little more information available to his son Abel. There is a certain amount of information more available to Noah. There's even more information available to Abraham. And there's even more information available to Moses. That's the whole idea of progressive revelation. And with revelation comes at different times requirements that God sets forth for, for man. These are often stated as mandates. And they, the, the major changes occur with the introduction of covenants and a covenant change. For example, there's the initial creation covenant that God made with Adam, uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 2, 17 would be part of that, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there's failure. Man failed to live up to and obey the revelation that was given to him in terms of uh, violating the prohibition. Now there's going to be a change. There's modification of revelation that occurs in Genesis chapter 3. Now new information is brought forth that because of sin, there are consequences that change the nature of reality, the nature of creation, so that now the serpent is going to crawl on his belly. There are going to be certain changes in relation to the uh, biology, reproduction, uh, fact, uh, reproduction parts of the woman and the man, different changes in relationship to how they relate to each other. The woman's going to desire to control the man. The man's going to desire, uh, want to rule over the woman, which is the beginning of the uh, basic marital conflict that can only ultimately be resolved through sanctification. And then you have the problem of thorns and thistles and physical death and all of these other things that mean that man has to earn his living by the, spread, uh, by the sweat of the brow. They're given new information about sacrifices. Then as time goes by, man rejects that, and uh, God makes a statement that man's the thoughts of his heart are evil continually, continuously, and so there's the judgment of the worldwide flood under Noah because of the invasion of the uh, sons of God and the daughters of men and all of those factors there, you bring about the Noahic flood. Then there's new information given. Always new information means new requirements, new expectations, new tests, new responsibilities, and man fails. And we come up to Abraham. Abraham's given more information. Now God is going to specifically relate to all the human race through Abraham and through his descendants. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and we have the Abrahamic covenant and the focus on the three provisions of the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. That is the promise of God. And what we have seen in our study since we got into Abraham in verse 8 down through Joseph in verse 22 is the focus on this promise that they never saw fulfilled in their lifetime. And in their living life on the planet, they came under uh, various uh, measures of adversity and testing. They failed at times. They succeeded at times. They trusted God at unique and significant times in their life. And for those times when they trusted God in light of this unfulfilled promise that was still far off in the distance, and even though they never saw it in their lifetime, they were steadfast, they never gave up, they persevered, they endured, and they didn't give up because it got hard or because they became weary or because it was tough. Now, 
That application will come into play in the next chapter, but in this chapter, the writer is going through one evidence after evidence after evidence through all these key people in the Old Testament, and what underlies all this is this key doctrine of progressive revelation that each one is responsible for the amount of revelation given to their generation to fulfill the responsibility God gave to them in terms of their dispensation. So dispensational truth just really undergirds. It's it's the thread that runs through this whole chapter that is not as obvious as you would think it would be. But there is this emphasis on not growing weary, which is really driven home when we get down into the uh, middle part of the of the next chapter. So now we come to the next key person in line, which is which is Moses. But what lies behind this, and what, the question we ought to ask initially is, what's the promise that Moses is focusing on? When we get into this section from verse 23 down to verse 29, what is the promise? What was the promise that was the focus of the last section on dealing with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It's the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. Guess what? It really isn't going to change much. It's still within that same basic framework. And in Genesis 15, 13, and 14, God, in, in this chapter where he officially cut the covenant, he officially entered into the one-sided covenant with Abraham. It's one-sided because typically in the ancient world when they would sign a contract rather than calling for the uh, local uh, the uh, lo- local uh, authority to come and validate their signature and to make sure that everything was right, um, get the lawyers involved and everything else, what they would do is they would offer sacrifices and they would, they would split the animals in two and then the two parties to the contract would walk between the two, uh, the two halves of the sacrifice, indicating that they were both bound to the point of death to the, to the covenant they were entering into. But when, Ad, when God in, in uh, Genesis 15 uh, has, Ad, uh, has uh, Abraham cut the animals, sacrifice the animals, and lay them out, God causes a deep sleep to fall on Abraham, and God alone, signified by a torch a torch moving between the animals. God alone moves between the animals, indicating that he alone is bound by the covenant. Abraham is not. God is making this as an unconditional permanent covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Well, as part of that covenant, he warns Abraham that he will not always live in the land. In fact, there's going to come a time soon in terms of his, his just a few generations when his descendants will be out of the land. And in verse 13 he says, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Now it's real easy to count up to 400, unless you put billion or trillion behind it, and then nobody can figure out how much it means. But it's just a simple 400 years, so you can count that up. So by the time Moses is born, it's easy for his parents and that generation to be able to count how many years it has been since um, Jacob moved the family with 70 people down from Canaan to Egypt. And so they can count up 400 years, and they're saying, hmm, it's getting pretty close. They're about 
320 years from the 400. So they would know that, that, that we're approaching this, and if we're going to be delivered, then whoever is going to deliver us is going to be born sometime soon. Remember, there, uh, Moses' life breaks down very easily into three 40-year segments, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years with his father-in-law in Midian, and then 40 years wandering in the wilderness. So you have the first 40 years he's still uh, functioning in Pharaoh's court. Then in the second 40 years he's out in the desert with the sheep, learning a few things that God has to teach him about real leadership in terms of of uh, being in obscurity and learning humility and authority orientation. And then God, when he's ready, God brings him back uh, back to Egypt. So 80 years before the Exodus, 80 years before those 400 years are over with is when Moses is born. So that's why I said 320 years. So God prophesied and made it clear that there would be 400 years when they were out of the land. And he went on to say in verse 14, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. So the Israelites knew that as they were in servitude and had become enslaved to the Egyptians, that God had promised to judge the the Egyptians and that they would come out, as the promise says, with great possessions. So they can anticipate that. So that's the promise that they're latching onto in terms of the key focal point of the faith rest drill in their life. Every morning when they're getting up and they're having to go out and work as slaves for the Egyptians, there is a promise from God that this is temporary, that they're going to go back to the land, and when they go back to the land, they're going to have a great possession. So that is the backdrop for understanding the faith operation of Moses' parents in verse 23 and Moses in verses 24 down to 29. So let me just give you a breakdown of what we see here. There are five events mentioned in uh, Hebrews 11. First of all, in 11.23, the focus is on the faith of his parents. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden, passive verb, Moses isn't the one exercising faith. He didn't have anything to do with being hidden. He received the action of that by it was his parents' faith. He was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. Now, that is an interesting word in the Greek, but it's just a translation of the word that's used back there in the Hebrew, and it means that he was exceptional in his appearance, even as a as an infant, there was something physically distinct about him that made him stand out. And so they knew that there was something special about this child. And they were not afraid of the king's command. They're not afraid because they're trusting in God. So we have the birth of Moses in verse 23. And then in verses 24 to 26, this is again one whole one whole sentence. And this now speaks of Moses' faith. Moses got some doctrine somewhere, and before he uh, departed from the court of Pharaoh, not like the movie. You know, after you read uh, Hebrews 11, read this section, go back and read what Stephen says about Moses in Acts 7, then go back to uh, the book of Exodus and read Exodus, the first 20 five chapters of Exodus, 
read that about eight or ten times, make some notes, write down the chronology, identify who the key people are and what names they're given in the Bible, and then give yourself a little test and watch the Ten Commandments. It's not long till Easter, so you can read that section of Scripture 15, 20, 30 times between now and Easter, and then typically at Easter they'll show the Ten Commandments. And you can watch it and give yourself a little test and see how many errors you can find in the film. And if you find less than 30 discrepancies between the film and the Bible, then you didn't read very well. There are a lot of little distinctions. And, and, and one of these is that it seems that in the, in the film, Moses just surprisingly discovers that he is not the physical child of the Pharaoh's daughter, who he thought was his mother, but he is actually a Hebrew. But the indication from this section is that he knew that all along. And that he, before he comes to that point of making a decision as to which way he's going to go, he has some real doctrine in his soul that's the basis for that decision. And he knows what the significance and the consequence of that decision is and what the real spiritual issues are. Because verse 25 says he is choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. He understands they are the people of God, that there is a destiny for those people and that he would also mean that he understands who God is and why that's important. He would rather suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ. Wait a minute, I didn't think Christ was mentioned in the Old Testament. Hmm. He had a pretty good understanding of the messianic promise. By uh, he esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. See, he's doing the same thing that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph did. He's doing the same thing that Adam and Enoch, and I mean, Adam and uh, Abel and Enoch and Noah did. He sees a future fulfillment that is not going to be realized even in his own life, but yet that is more real to him than the circumstances of his present condition. And so he considered the ultimate future reward he would receive uh, from the Lord, a greater treasure than all of the treasures that he had. And as the uh, son of Pharaoh, there are very few people in this life who've had the power and the privileges and the prestige and the education and the treasure that Moses had. I mean, Bill Gates doesn't even comprehend what this is. I mean, you cannot name five political leaders who had the kind of power in combination that the Pharaoh had. He not only had power, he had the wealth. He not only had the power and the wealth, he had, I mean, at this time, the Pharaoh is God, and he owns all the land. It was an early form of socialism. Owns all the land and all the means of production in Egypt. It all belongs to the Pharaoh. The people are just living there and paying property tax, so to speak. It is a 
the, the, the God king of the Pharaoh was unlike anything we can ever imagine in our world. We've never seen anything like this. And he has it all. He turns his back on it because the reality of the reward of God is more concrete to him than all of this that he has around him. Now, if you watch the movie, that helps you to get a little bit of a, a, a physical grasp, an empirical grasp of what it must have been like. And he walked away from it, not simply by mistake, not simply because he got angry and he kills those uh, <clears throat> the overseer and he suddenly is discovered to be a Hebrew, which is how the movie portrays it, and this shocks everybody in the court and shocks everybody in the in the Pharaoh's household, and so he has to be banished. That is not how it happened. It is a choice he made. It, he wasn't the, the victim of something. He wasn't mistreated and kicked out. He made the choice to leave. That is a phenomenal decision that can only come from somebody who has already learned a certain amount of doctrine and is applying it. Then the third event that is emphasized is in verse 27, that he forsook Egypt or left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, Ahmadinejad, all of these are just would-be tin-horn dictators who just, in their wildest dreams, they think they would like to have the power the Pharaoh had. I mean, if there was any historical figure on earth to be really afraid of because of the real power they wielded, it would be the Pharaoh. And yet Moses has a relaxed mental attitude, and he's not afraid of the wrath of the king because he knows that the king serves at God's pleasure. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. Notice the irony of those words. He sees the one who is invisible. And so we know that his seeing the one who is invisible isn't a physical sight, but it is a mental perception of the one who is invisible. And then the fourth event relates to the Passover. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch him. So that had to do with the death the death of the firstborn as God came to take the life of all the firstborn in Egypt. None, no Jews died, only firstborn Egyptians did. And then the final event is the event of the Red Sea, passing through the Red Sea on dry land where instead the Egyptians were drowned. So that's the outline here of these five events that are used as illustrations in verses 23 to 29. Now, in a back background, we have to understand just a few things related to uh, the the Exodus. And it's, I don't want to belabor these points, but they're things that need to be addressed and questions consistently come up related to these. So let's just take it one verse at a time and work our way through this. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So let's turn away from Hebrews 11 and go to a couple of corroborating passages on our way back to Exodus chapter 2. And the first place we're going to stop on our little uh, 
time travel back through history is in the seventh chapter of Acts. Now, the seventh chapter of Acts gives us a tremendous example of an early church sermon. And this is Stephen, one of the original uh, deacons in the church that were chosen to assist the apostles in Jerusalem. And they had been, uh, as the famine occurred, they were... They were scattered, but Stephen was still in Jerusalem, and he is ministering there. And he is brought before the high priest because of his stand that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he's being interrogated before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, and he addresses them. He shows just how cool and calm and relaxed he is. Now, what's important to understand about this this particular address is how he uses Old Testament events and weaves them together in order to make his point. And what we see here, if you trace, look, if you read this, is he goes to certain key events that happened historically in the Old Testament. And that is, the, these are the key events that provide the major pegs on which biblical history and doctrine Turn, and that's where uh, when uh, Charlie Clough started the, his framework series, he recognized that people just don't have this biblical framework, and it's not just Stephen's speech, but in the life of Christ and various references that that Paul makes, there are certain events that occurred in the Old Testament that are referred to again and again and again, because in those events, when they historically happened. That is when certain key doctrines were revealed in and through those events. Doctrine wasn't just revealed in an abstract 20-point doctrine where God said, okay, Noah, come on over here, let's sit down for a minute, let me give you 20 points on the doctrine of the covenant I'm going to enter into with you. That's not how it happened. Doctrine wasn't separated from historical situations and circumstances. You can't tear them apart. If you deny the historicity of the Bible, you have to deny the doctrine. These people who come along today and say, well, I believe what the Bible teaches, but I just don't believe it happened like that. Well, they have the IQ of a grain of sand because in the Bible, all the doctrines, everything that is taught is anchored in a real-time historical event. And if the history didn't happen, the doctrine is irrelevant. If you don't have a historic fall with two individuals, Adam and Eve, then all of the Bible falls apart because the Lord Jesus Christ affirms that as a foundation for sin. Paul affirms their existence and the reality of the fall as a foundation for understanding justification by faith and reconciliation and everything that happened on the cross. If you deny the historicity of Genesis 2 and 3, you've got to throw out the cross. If you deny creation in Genesis 1, you have to throw out the rest of the Bible, a literal 24-hour, six-consecutive-day creation week is not optional. Because that is the foundation for everything else in the Scripture. Jesus clearly affirms it, Paul affirms it, and uses it to teach doctrine. And so if the doctrine that they teach on the basis of those historical events 
if, if that doctrine is taught on the basis of those historical events and those historical events are false, then the doctrine is, false, is irrelevant. It doesn't fit. So I encourage you sometime to read through Acts chapter 7 as to the events that, um, that Stephen is going to emphasize. And isn't it interesting that he goes through the same thing in terms he starts with dealing with Abraham and the, the patriarchs and then the move of the patriarchs down to Egypt in verses 9 through 16, and that they are uh, they become enslaved. And then in verse 17 we read, uh, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham. That's what we started with, Genesis 15, 13 to 14. The promise that God had made to Abraham that they would only be in Egypt 400 years till another king arose who did not know Joseph. So when Joseph and his brothers moved down, they were under one uh, regime in Egypt's history that had gratitude. But there was another group of foreigners that came in not long after that, after the brothers all died, not long after that. You had a group of uh, they came out of the area of southern Canaan, somewhere in the Middle East, called the Hyksos people, H-Y-K-S-O-S. And the Hyksos people uh, were hated by the Egyptians, and they dominated Egypt for about a 100 years or so. And then they were eventually thrown off. And when they were thrown off, a new dynasty, Egyptian dynasty, came into power. This was the 18th dynasty. The first pharaoh in the 18th dynasty, we'll see in a minute, was named Amosis or Amos. See the in, hear the ending? Sounds just like Moses, doesn't it? Uh, it, it, is a, it is an Egyptian uh, name. And so a lot of the pharaohs had that M-O-S as part of their name, just like we have people named you know, Johnson and Williamson, and that S-O-N is a very similar idea to the uh, that, that part of the name Moses. So Moses was probably not his full name. It was probably part of his name, or it might have even been uh, sort of a, a nickname that was given to him as opposed to the full name, because just like if you examine someone like a uh, Prince Charles in England, he has a lengthy list of names that were given to him, but he's just known as Prince Charles. That's only one of his uh, one of his several names. So Stephen says, when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Now, that's a different piece of information than you get in Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus chapter 1, the midwives are directed to kill the male children, but this adds the idea that they were the people were to expose their children just to take the male infants and leave them out to starve to death and die. Verse 20, at this time Moses was born, right in the midst of all of that happening, and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. Again, it's that three-month period that he is there with his mother. Uh, but when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. This is the whole story about Moses being put out on the river and Pharaoh's daughter discovering him. 
And then verse 22, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So he is exceptionally well educated. He went to the, uh, had all of the best tutors and the best minds in Egypt who were teaching him in all of the various uh, uh, academic arts of military skills as well as architectural design, uh, trigonometry, geometry. They couldn't build the, the, the pyramids like they did without a knowledge of these uh, these mathematical skills, trigonometry and geometry. We think they came along later. I believe that they were still being remembered from the pre-flood period that that memory eventually got lost and then rediscovered later under the Greeks and later Egyptians and others. But uh, at this stage, he is taught all of this. He just had a phenomenal education. And we read in verse um, 23, Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart, that is his mind, to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian overseer, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And that tells us that he has some sense, some realization of his destiny, that the reason that God has called him at that point. Now, he's trying to do it in his own flesh. He hasn't matured enough to be able to do it in the power of, of God. But it shows that, that he has some doctrine at this point and has a sense of his, his, God's personal plan uh, for his life. Now, we'll leave Acts 7 there and go all the way back to Acts, I mean to uh, Exodus, Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Now there's two questions that always come up whenever you study Exodus. And these are questions that come up again and again and again. The first question is, when did this happen? What is the date of the Exodus event and how can we date it? And the second question that comes up that is then uh, sought to be answered after the first one is, who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus? Who was that? Was it Yul Brenner? Ramesses the second, or was it um, was it somebody else? Was it Amenhotep the second? Was it Thutmose the third? Was it somebody else? Somebody that we never even heard about? Some uh, somebody in one of the intermediate periods that is not really well known and there's no historical data because there are certain periods of Egyptian history where there's just very little um, very little information uh, left for us to understand. Now the circumstance that we see is that this Pharaoh that did not have did not know Joseph, had no respect for the Hebrews, hated the Hebrews because the Egyptians the Egyptians hated the Hebrews more than any uh, Mississippi Ku Klux Klan's member ever hated a black person. Uh, maybe that, I hope that'll put that in context. I mean, the prejudice and the hatred, the racial hatred that Egyptians had for Semites was unbelievable. They wouldn't even sit down and eat it in the same room with them. They did not want to do anything with them what's, a, a, at all in any way, shape, or form. And yet during this time, God has blessed them, that is, blessed the Hebrews so much that he, they have 
multiplied. They've had a very low uh, infant mortality rate, and they have grown in abundance. And back in verse uh, verse 7 we're told, of chapter 1, we're told the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. They started when, with, with um, uh, Jacob who came down to, from Canaan with 70 people, approximately 70 people. And 400 years later, they had two and a half to three million people. That is a healthy birth rate. And it is, and, and the women were having lots of children. I mean, we live in a generation now, if you have three children, it's just kind of an aberration. If you have six or seven, it's thought to be strange. When I was in my first church, there were several people who were in their 80s who were the babies in families of 17 or 20 children. So there are generations before us that had more than just uh, 1.5 children. And the, the Jews had, the Hebrews had a tremendous number of children. They were healthy. They had a low infant mortality rate. And as a result, they had grown exponentially. And remember, if Moses lived to be 120, their living to the normal lifespan was between 100 and 130 years of age. So you had at least two more generations living uh, at the same time than we do today. So that would just explode the population. And that scared the Egyptians to death because it was like having an enemy within your uh, within your country that was another ethnic group with another culture, and they th- were threatening the very culture and existence of the of the Egyptian people. Today, don't often recognize how how that happens. The French recognized it some years ago and quit uh, letting. Uh, uh, citizenship be determined simply by being born in France because so many Muslims had moved to and immigrated to France that they were being born there and being given French citizenship. And they knew that if that continued, then they would lose all uh, French identity. And so they stopped that. Other nations haven't been quite as wise. Other European nations are beginning to, to wake up and do the same kind of thing. Otherwise, they'll lose their historic ethnic identity. Germany, Germans won't look like Germans anymore, and the Danes won't look like Danish anymore, and the Norwegians won't look like Norwegians anymore because of the huge influx of uh, Middle Eastern Arabs into their nations. So in order to exercise a little population control, uh, the Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So all of the male children were to be destroyed by drowning in the river, and then every daughter saved. So this is an attempt to destroy and wipe out the, the, um, the, the, the Hebrews. But the question is, who's this Pharaoh? Now, to understand this, we have to have a timeline, go through a little chronology, and we're going to build this backward. So we know pretty pretty well when the cross occurred, approximately 33 A.D. There are some who say it was 30. I think the best date is 33. And so now we're going to build our timeline going backwards and extending it back in time, and we'll put a marker in here for 1000 B.C. Just after 1000 B.C., that's about the time that David was king, 
in about 970, David died and Solomon took the, took the throne. And in 966 BC, and we can date this with a, it's fairly solid. It's not completely solid though. I want to, I'll have some caveats a little later on. But this, what I'm presenting to you is pretty much the uh, standard accepted chronology at this point. There's a few people who, conservatives, who believe the numbers in the Bible, who are challenging this because, as I'll show in just a minute, after about 700 B.C., there's just not as much certainty as we have for events after 700 B.C. But this is the standard accepted uh, chronology that you'll have in most of your study Bibles or any other uh, commentaries you read by conservatives who believe the numbers in the Bible are accurate. So Solomon de- dedicates the temple in 966 B.C., and we're told that it was 480 years after the Exodus in 1 Kings 6.1. That states it very clearly, 480 years. And unless you're, you just doubt the Bible or you, uh, liberals will come along and say, well, you know, that, that's, you divide 480 uh, by 40, you get 120 uh, generations or, excuse me, 12 generations. And uh, so this is the sort of a perfect number, and yet generations were actually only 25 years, and so it really wasn't that long. And that's just their way of denying the historicity of the text, but that's how they'll end up with a uh, date for the Exodus of around 1250. That's when Ramses II was the, was the Pharaoh. But if you take the biblical numbers literally, you end up with the date of the Exodus at 1446 B.C. Then we also know that there was 430 years between between the patriarch between Jacob entering Egypt and the Exodus. So 1876 B.C. is when Jacob would enter Egypt. That would mean Isaac was born in 2066, and Abraham would be born in 2166. And this is. This is accepted within, let's say, plus or minus 100 years. There's been some studies that have come out recently, and I just haven't had the time, the energy, or the mathematical uh, capacity to really get into the technicalities of a lot of this chronology, which suggests that this may be off maybe 50 years even. And I don't know how valid that is, but there are some chronological problems that we have to deal with. Now, when we look at this timeline, we have to then look at the, the, the basic timeline of the um, 18th dynasty of, of Egypt. The 18th dynasty comes in after they kicked the Hyksos out in 1570. And the first is Am- Amosis or Amos. And you see that there are certain names that continue over and again. You have Amenhotep. And Thutmose, you have Thutmose first, second, third, and fourth. You have Amenhotep the uh, first, second, and third, and all the way down to Tutankhamen. Now there was just an article in the paper yesterday about the analysis of DNA on King Tut, and that he had all kinds of bone, uh, degenerative bone disease, and all of these other things. And he is the son of Amenhotep the fourth, Amenhotep the fourth, otherwise known as. Akhenaten or Ikhenaten, who is sometimes said to be the the first uh, Egyptian to try to bring monotheism into Egypt. 
Now, this is a favorite liberal ploy because the monotheism that he's bringing in isn't really a true monotheism. Uh, Akhenaten, Aton is the, uh, the sun disc, the sun god. He just wants to do away with the other gods and goddesses and promote his favorite deity, sort of like what Muhammad did when he uh, instigated uh, Islam. He got rid of the 359 other uh, gods in the Arabic pantheon. He just wanted to promote Allah. But initially there were other goddesses that made up Allah's three wives were goddesses. And then later on, uh, they sort of got taken out of Islam. and But it's not a pure monotheism, at least originally, and neither was that. But what you'll hear in the typical Western civilization university class is that the Exodus occurred in 1250, 1260 B.C. Well, that's after Tutankhamun and Akhenaten. And Moses got his ideas of monotheism from Akhenaten, not from God. Now, I was 18 years old, never heard any of this, and I'm sitting in Western Civ, and this is what I'm hearing. I'm going, I know that's not right, but i got to be able to answer this guy. You know, how do I know he's wrong? I mean, that's what the textbook says. That's what he says. And that was that is standard liberal approach. And so uh, um, Ramses II then, who comes after Tutankhamun, he's the um, most powerful pharaoh. And there was an assumption made back in the very beginning of Egyptology in the early 19th century that said that, well, the, the only pharaoh we know that was a really big, bad, powerful dude that had a tremendous amount of wealth was Ramesses II. So that must have been the pharaoh that Moses was dealing with. Notice there's no data there. There's no archaeological data. There's no historical data. It's just this assumption that Ramesses was rich and powerful the Pharaoh that Moses dealt with was rich and powerful, so that must have been Ramses. And Egypt, Egyptologists do, still do not want to give, give that up. They want to believe that it had to have been Ramses because Ramses was such a big, bad, powerful dude. But that doesn't fit the biblical data at all. So we've got this chronological problem. And here's the chronological problem. There's our timeline. Exodus occurs in 1446 B.C., according to the Bible. Abraham would be born in 2166 B.C., as I just showed you in that timeline earlier. But if we take the numbers strictly in the genealogy in Genesis chapter 11, then that would indicate that the flood of Noah would end about 2503 B.C., now, according to standard Egyptian chronology, we have a little problem because the first dynasty would have begun at 2920 B.C., some 400 years before the flood ended. Hmm. Well, if it's a worldwide flood, it would have wiped everything out, so how do we have the pyramids and everything else? Somebody's wrong. Somebody's getting their dates wrong. Somebody's getting all confused on this, so how are we going to resolve this? And the, the problem that we have is there's a 387-year uh, difference, plus or minus, give a few. Uh, maybe the flood was a little earlier. Maybe the flood was 3,000 or 3,100. There, that's one approach that is being taken by some conservatives today is they're recognizing we've, we've got some problems in sort of the intertestamental period and the, the early period from uh, Babylon on and that we need to maybe find another 50 or 100 years in there, but that doesn't really resolve the whole problem. 
Another approach that was made uh, about, a, about 10, 15 years ago by a, named, a guy named David Roll called um, Pharaohs and Kings, and, I, and there, there are problems with his view as well, but at least here's a secular Egyptologist who re, who's taking the biblical numbers at face value. Now, he said that the, the problem we have in ancient chronology is that uh, we've got this initial assumption that Ramses II was the pharaoh of Exodus. This goes back to when Champlain first discovered, translated the Rosetta Stone and gives birth to Egyptology. Uh, this was the assumption that they made, and they still don't want to give this up. In 664 B.C., we know that Ashurbanipal invades and sacks Thebes, and that's a almost 100% sure. That's about as far back as we go with any kind of really solid dating. And um, then we know that in f- approximately 1550 B.C., uh, there was, uh, uh, or ex- excuse me, in 925 B.C., there is this, this invasion by Shishak that's mentioned in at the time of Hezekiah, believe, um, well, that'd be earlier than Hezekiah, or earlier at the time of, uh, of uh, right after Solomon, in 925, and so there's a, a, an equation between Shoshank I of, of uh, Egypt with Shishak. The trouble is, with that is that the SH sound in Egyptian, when, it get, when those words get converted to Hebrew, it becomes an S sound. When an S sound in Hebrew goes to Egyptian, it would become an SH sound. The SH would go to S, and the S would go to SH on both languages. So uh, it's very difficult to identify Shoshank with Shishak. This is this is a uh, false identification. And then there was a there's a calendar known as the Abers calendar, which is the basis for arguing that the 18th dynasty began about 1550 B.C. But the only date that we know of there that sure is the 664 date. Everything else is is sort of in flux. And the Ramses date was is based on the Ebers calendar. But if that's off, so Ramses is off. So all of that is just rather rather speculative, and we really don't know for sure. Now, this is why this makes a difference, and this is just one reconstruction. In conventional Egyptian chronology, we have a timeline up there that starts 1526 B.C. At the beginning of that timeline, you would have the 18th dynasty. Benchmark dates would be 1526, 1446 B.C. for the Exodus, 966 B.C. for when the temple was dedicated. The New Kingdom, 18th Dynasty, runs in that period, 1539, 1550, depending on who you're looking at today, to 1069 B.C. Um, in, the, in this time period, you have Amos the first. And the reason I have two sets of dates there is because Kenneth Kitchen, who's evangelical, but he doesn't fully accept all the numbers in the Bible is literally true, went back and he reconstructed the chronology in what's called the third intermediate period in Egyptian history. And so he said, well, almost really didn't start at 1570. That's more the traditional date. He was 1539. So that's this disagreement within Egyptian chronology. Now, they don't tell you that on the History Channel. They don't tell you that on the Discovery Channel, that, that there's even among Egyptologists, there's, there's disagreement as to when these people ruled. So 
I'm working off the traditional dates. Those are the ones in white. Uh, then, after Amos, several generations later, you had had Shepset came to to the throne, and then um, her nephew Thutmose III is a co-regent with her from 1504 to 1450. See so if the Exodus occurs in 1446. We're getting uh, really close now to the Exodus, and Thutmose dies in 1450, four years before the Exodus, and he is succeeded by Amenhotep II, whose dates are 1450 to 1425. Now, here's an interesting question. Did the Pharaoh die in the Red Sea? I almost feel like saying, raise your hands. How many of you all think the Pharaoh went down the Red Sea? He didn't. Well, there's, dis- there's debate on that. Today I sent out a link to about five or six different articles on the Biblical Research Associates website. These are really solid guys. They publish a, a journal. Some of you have seen, uh, some have been put out in the, in the lobby called Bible and Spade. These are really conservative uh, biblical archaeologists, and no two of them agree as to who the Pharaoh Exodus is. We had a pastor's conference with Schaefer Seminary back in the mid-'90s up in uh, uh, Minneapolis, and three or four of these Egyptologists came and spoke, and none of them had, they didn't agree with each other as to who the Pharaoh of the Exodus was. So when you think it was Hatshepsut was the mother, and you think it was Thutmose and Amenhotep, because that's been drilled into you, we don't know that. We really don't. The Bible doesn't give a name to Pharaoh or to Pharaoh's daughter or any of these other people. So if this is the if this is this is the traditional view, but look at the at the yellow dates. If the yellow dates are true, that's uh, Kenneth Kitchen's reconstruction. Then Thutmose the third doesn't uh, is still on the throne in, uh, from 1479 to 1425, which would mean he was the pharaoh of the Exodus, not Amenhotep. And we know the graves of both of them. We've recovered the mummies of both of them. But if you read, carefully read Exodus, it never says, you read the Pharaoh and his chariots, the Pharaoh and his chariots are pursuing the Israelites, the Pharaoh and his chariots, the Pharaoh and his chariots, and then Moses parts the Red Sea, and then the army of Pharaoh pursues them, and then the waters close in. didn't say Pharaoh. All the, it was Pharaoh and his army, Pharaoh and his army, Pharaoh and his army, and then the army of Pharaoh. What happened to Pharaoh? And and there's, there's one... Um, one reference in uh, Psalm, I've got this somewhere later on, um, that I didn't write it down in my notes because I put it on a slide. Let me see if I can find it here. There it is, Psalm 136.15, which reads, uh, But God overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. So a lot of people say, Ah, see, he drowned Pharaoh. No, the word for overthrow is na'ar, which means to shake or to rattle his cage, or to mess things up, but it doesn't mean to drown. So you can't go to Psalm uh, 136.15 to argue that Pharaoh was drowned in the Exodus. But that's what a lot of people believe. Now, if you actually go and read some of those articles that I recommended, you'll have one by Bryant Wood, who's very good. I love his stuff. But Bryant Wood believes this... This supports the view that Pharaoh was drowned. 
Then there's another article by, I can't remember who his name was, on the identification of the Pharaoh, and he says, no, this doesn't. So it just shows you the disagreement that's there. And that's part of what I wanted you to understand tonight is that when we talk about these things related to the Exodus event and who's the Pharaoh and who's the daughter of Pharaoh and everything, you've, you've heard for years who that was, and we don't know. Now let me go back and do one more thing here before I finish. We've gone through the chronological conundrum here, and we did that. Let me get through this slide. Okay, conventional Egyptian chronology. This is what we've all been taught, what we've all heard, going back to Unger's Bible Dictionary, even before that. But if this chronology is off, by, for example, with David Roll, he says it's off 300 years. If this is off, now you have to watch the slide here. If this is off, then those people in the new kingdom don't, aren't reigning at this time. They're reigning after the Exodus. You see that? Let me do that again for those of you who are asleep. Okay. If, if this is the new kingdom period with these as your key, key pharaohs, that's the date, the traditional date for when they when they ruled. But if we're off by 300 years, which some, several people have suggested, Emmanuel Velikovsky was one who suggested, I think he had 450 years that were artificially put into Egyptian chronology. If we're off two or 300 years, then Amos and Hatshepsut and Thutmose and Amenhotep did not reign bef- during the life of Moses and overlap the Exodus. They're not even alive yet. They're actually 300 years later. Now, I'm not sure that Roll is right. His is one of about six or seven competing reconstructions of Egyptian chronology, but mainstream Egyptologists don't like any of it because they are bound and determined to hold on to their, to the same structure that they've always, always held on to. So, and it's as politicized as, as climatology. It, it, it's as politicized as any science department in any university anywhere else. And so uh, there's all, all sorts of, of problems related to that. So historically, we don't know exactly who the Pharaoh was. We don't know exactly who the daughter of Pharaoh was. But we do know that the events in Exodus happened exactly as the Scripture said, And when the time came for Moses to be born, his parents understood enough doctrine to not be afraid of the Pharaoh and to relax. And then they hid him by, instead of drowning him or putting, by putting him out in the river and basically letting God take care of it. It's a great illustration of casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Just faith, rest, drill, and action. And look at what God did with that. So we'll come back next time and we'll get into the uh, life of Moses a little more and his uh, faith rest drill in relation to God. Father, thank you for this time to study these things. We know that our faith in Scripture is not predicated upon historical verification or confirmation. That is simply secondary. And too often we can get pretty confused if we try to match things up, and then later on uh, other evidence comes forward which demonstrates a false match. Our faith is in your word and in you, 
and that you have revealed accurately to us the truth of your word. And therefore, we can relax and we can trust your word and we cannot be overwhelmed by the circumstances of life, no matter how difficult or horrible they may become, even under uh, tyrannical government as uh, the Israelites were, even under unjust regimes. We can relax and trust you and have perfect happiness and perfect peace. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.